Hi, my name is Jason. I am a deacon in training here at Pierce Point Community Church. We've all been going through some fun topics. Um, the one I was given is actually the, it's a story most people probably know in this room. It's the rich man and Lazarus. And this is how the prompt was given to me. The rich man and Lazarus, period. Parable, question mark? About heaven and hell, question mark. So, I'm going to go ahead and just read the passage, and then we're going to discuss further. Now, this is Luke 16, starting at verse 19. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg of you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... They will not be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead. Okay. So, what's going on here? If we look at the context, we're going to back up a little bit. I'm not going to go through all the details. But starting at Luke 14, Jesus is at a Pharisee, a religious leader's house. And they're eating, and it's the Sabbath. They're eating bread. And he ends up healing somebody, and there's a debate about that. That causes him to go on kind of a tirade against them and speak in parables. Then it's just parable after parable after parable. And up until this passage that I just read in Luke 16 about the rich man and Lazarus, that was six parables. Now, there are some people within the church who say you cannot believe that hell, which it's a whole topic, or the lake of fire, the final resting place of someone who's a non-Christian, um, doesn't solely hinge on this passage, but a lot of people claim that this passage, if it is a parable, then that just ruins the whole argument that the lake of fire is a place of eternal conscious torment, right? There's others who would say that um, it doesn't matter, and I kind of am falling in that camp after doing some research on it, um, he's, the reason why I think there's good reason to believe that this is a parable, not saying that the things aren't true in the parable and that, 
You know, people can die and go to hell and things like that. Just like there can be a prodigal son or there can be a, a uh, uh, unrighteous uh, manager of money who is redeemed. One of the parables that's mentioned in these six that I just talked about. Um, it's not to say that there can't be true things in them that could actually happen. It's just saying that these certain stories, you shouldn't be putting a name and an address of somebody who actually existed on them. That's not the point. That's not the purpose. So we can put that aside, whether or not you believe in uh, annihilation, annihilationism, which is just that you're destroyed at the end of your days if you are not in the love of Christ upon your time of death, or you're eternally, consciously tormented, Dante's Inferno style, or what have you. It does not matter. That's completely irrelevant. So we're going to just actually look at this story, and that makes it a lot easier, um, I am not completely married to the idea that it has to be a parable, but we're definitely engaged. So I think if anybody finds some evidence that you really think is strong, then certainly challenge me about it. Uh, you, know where I, you know where to find me. Um, I'm also on Facebook. You can message me there. Um, so we're going to just go ahead and get in there. And something that's really interesting that I didn't know, I listened to a guy named uh, R.C. Sproul. He's gone to be with the Lord at this point in time, but he's an old school preacher, um, and he pointed this out to me. I never knew this, but the name Lazarus um, actually has a, a really interesting meaning. It's the Hebrew name of Lazarus is Elazar, and Elazar means God has helped, which is very interesting because I went back and I was like, well, when, where are some other Lazaruses or Elazars in the Bible? And it took me to Genesis 15.2. And it's really interesting because in this passage, Lazarus, Abram's Lazarus, is a servant of his, a slave of his. And he actually, when talking to God in Genesis 15, 2, I'll go ahead and read it. He said, well, yeah, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said... Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. So this is him getting rejected. He was the closest thing to an heir he had. He was born in his house. And God is telling Abram, No, you're, I'm going to actually give you a kid. God's like, There's no way I'm too old. Um, we all kind of know that story. So it's interesting here. You see someone who is another Eleazar, another Lazarus, and in his life, he is being rejected. And it doesn't seem like he, his name is being put into play. God has helped, right? God has helped you by giving you sores and setting you outside of a rich man's house, and he doesn't give two flips about you, right? So, well, there's a little bit of a plot twist because we have in this passage, it says, when he dies... Angels took him to be in the bosom of Abraham, all right? So God is finally helping him late in the game, but he's, he's finally helping him apparently. And now he's in Abraham's bosom. Now at this point in time in Jewish thought, if you kind of look at the Old Testament, a lot of times the word that we use for hell is the word sheol. It'll kind of be interchangeable. Back then, it was kind of, the idea was that that was the general resting place until the resurrection of both the uh, righteous and unrighteous. Uh, we even see Samuel coming up out of his slumber um, from the witch in Endor and 
uh, King Saul's using this medium to bring him up. And he's like, what are you doing? I was sleeping. Come on, man. Goes back down. He doesn't come up from the sky. He comes up from the ground. Well, by the time the second temple had been built, this is kind of, this is called a, scholars call it uh, the second temple period where there was second temple literature. It's basically the area between the Old and New Testament. If you're a Star Wars fan, think of the Clone Wars cartoon series between episodes two and three. It kind of fills in the gaps, right? So there's a lot of stuff in there that we wouldn't consider to be canonical, but it's pretty interesting, and it helps you get inside of uh, a first-century Jewish person so you kind of understand where they're coming from and why, especially Matthew, who's writing a very Jewish gospel, is, you know, he's speaking to them. So they have this idea now at this point in time that there were two spots within that place, and there was the spot where um, the righteous would go and the unrighteous would go. So eventually, if you keep reading the New Testament, it's, there's even more kind of ideas that are put in, and eventually there's the whole lake of fire, and that's even mentioned in a little bit of uh, a Second Temple literature. But just when you think of this place where this person's being tormented, you're, you ought not think of the lake of fire, whatever you think the lake of fire is. That's not it. This is a kind of an intermediate kind of holding cell. This is a lot of people where they get purgatory, the idea of that from would be this place. So, with that being said, these characters, like I said, it's a parable. So, there probably was someone named Lazarus, and there probably was someone uh, who was a rich man. I mean, we see that all the time in the New Testament. Um, But it doesn't clarify whether it is or isn't. So, what happens is, this guy is getting helped. And if you see, now that he is in this place, this uh, Lazarus... He is in Abraham's bosom, and we're assuming this man was probably a Jew, as long as also as the rich man was, but the rich man is not with his father Abraham. He appeals to them and says, Father Abraham, why don't you help me? And it's even worse because he doesn't say, help me. He says, have Lazarus help me. So even in this man's death, he's still putting Lazarus at a, at a lower spot than even him. And if you go back to these parables Jesus has just been saying, a lot of them focus on the religious leaders putting people they consider less than below them. So now the roles are reversed, right? So this time you see him crying out and he says, no, and you're not going to get this help basically. Lazarus um, was saved and you're not. It's kind of interesting. Imagine saying that to your child, like, child, it sucks for you. You are mean. Also, you can't come to me. Like, it's very, it, it sounds very scary to me when I, when I first read it the very first time. But what's interesting is then he says, fine, if you're not going to let Lazarus be a slave for me to go back and, and preach, then what's going to happen? My, my brothers aren't going to believe um, in this gospel, in this uh, this." story that Jesus was showing to people that they need to lower their self down and not think as high as their self and to see others they consider below themselves to be at the same level. Um, how are they going to believe that unless someone rises from the dead? And this is really cool because who do we know that rises from the dead in the New Testament? Jacob. Yes, but who else? Jesus. So when Matthew's saying this, he's saying, it's a good point, and then there's also a bunch in Matthew too that says they, so that kind of it wasn't as ironclad as I thought it was. But Jesus is risen from the dead, right? And there's people that um, believe in it, 
And there's people that even say they believe in it and all kinds of things. And we still see people that die apart from Christ. We still see people that say they claim it, but they don't actually practice it. They don't actually believe it. Um, so it's interesting what he's saying here is he says, he says they have the law and the prophets or they have Moses and the prophets. Uh, that was a Freudian slip there. When I think Moses, I think law. Why? Because God gave his law through Moses to the Jewish people. And if we read what it says in Romans, Romans 3, I believe, Paul talks about how the law shuts you up when you look at it. Because if you actually use the law lawfully, uh, Paul talks about that in, uh, in one of the letters to Timothy. When you use it lawfully, you see that it's not for an unrighteous, or not for a righteous person. It's for an unrighteous person. It's like a mirror. You look in the mirror after you just got done working the coal mine, and you see your face is dirty. So then you get clean. In this analogy, Jesus would be the way you get clean. The law, all the different rules and regulations, it helps you see how little you really are when you think you're some big shot religious leader. You look at that law, and then it makes you realize that you need forgiveness, you need grace, you need Jesus. Now, I'm not saying today a 21st century person who didn't grow up, especially a Gentile, a non-Jew, who didn't grow up hearing the Old Testament and New Testament and all that, I'm not saying you have to read them these ancient laws and then show them that they are sinners by that, but the effect is still the same. You're showing someone they need a Savior. You're showing someone that they have broken the law, even if you don't say it. So there are many different ways it can be done, but he's saying right here, unless they, believe, don't, unless they believe the truth that the prophets and the law had said that they were wicked apart from the love of God and that they were damned, essentially, without his grace and forgiveness, then it doesn't matter if they believe someone is risen from the dead. There are plenty of different religious sects that believe Jesus existed and he was risen from the dead, but they don't believe in why he came. So it they don't believe in the actual Jesus because they need to believe in the need for Jesus. They need to understand that they're that guy um, who needs help. Um, so in closing, I will just tell everybody, there are going to be some people, a lot of people, that you think are too far gone and beneath you and that you shouldn't speak to them and that someone else maybe will do it. And I'm not saying that you're going to end up being like this rich man or anything like that, but you need to remember that at one point in time in the grand scheme, even if you've never been homeless or out on the street begging or panhandling, in the eyes of God, you have been that low down. You have been that person who's rebelled. You've been that person that smelled bad, that people didn't want to talk to. You've been that person, or metaphorically smelled bad. You've been that person that people just regard as too wicked to be helped. And you need to be mindful. Obviously, you don't want to keep pouring into someone who is just completely rejecting it. That's why it's a good question to ask somebody, I think. If you could prove that God existed and that the New Testament and Old Testament were true, would they serve him? If they say no, then you realize maybe that's the person that you get in your prayer closet for and you don't shell out for your grand for. But if they say yes, then there's still hope. And either way, there's always hope. As long as their heart's beating, um, there's still time. So we just need to be mindful. Don't think you're too high and mighty. Now, I have an advantage because I'm only like five foot two and a half, maybe five foot three with my lifts in my shoes. Um, so I already know how low I am. So maybe kind of get on your knees sometimes, put your shoes on, walk around down there, and realize that's where you have been before God came and saved you and made you a new creature. With that, I'll go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us 
everything that you've given us, especially all these tools and resources so that we can know your word better and be able to uh, study you and learn of you and just share you with all who are around us. We thank you that you've made us whole and complete in your love. I ask that anything that came out of my mouth that you approve of would go into people's ears and stay there and then go into their heart and that we could all change and be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.